welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 89 as we slowly edge towards 100. I keep saying that I'm going to do some new music for it, but I haven't yet. Last minute, as always. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's July, and it's July the 1st to be precise, so happy Canada Day to those in Canada and I guess Canadians around the world. It's also Independence Day in Rwanda, Burundi, and Somalia. I was looking at who was born on July the 1st, and it's always tough with a global podcast because chances are if I mention a sports personality or maybe even music or television, they might not be known across the globe. But I think we're safe with Debbie Harry from Blondie, who is 75 today, amazingly, and also Canadian actor Dan Aykroyd. And neither of them are probably listening to this podcast. Before we get to the news from the past week, I'll let you know who we have on the podcast this time. Our guests on the show are Larry McGill, Corporate Vice President, GSF and CEO of CanPack US, Take-Two Foods co-founder and CEO Sarah Poole, and the other co-founder and COO, Matt Olsofsky. We also hear from Ulrich Egens from Novozymes One Health, and Shafali Sharma, Director of the European Office at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. It's been a wet week here, not that we had any choice in the matter, and it's probably going to rain for the next week as well. And associated with that, we've also had a drop in temperature, so perhaps summer is over. On the bright side, a lot more stores reopened here in Scotland, but then hardly anybody is wearing a mask, and the two-metre rule only seems to apply to waiting outside stores to get in. It's still uncertain whether there will be any trade shows this year, even if there are places open. There may be some countries still in the midst of the pandemic, and so some exhibitors and visitors might not be able to be there. So we'll see how that pans out. Although I see there are still quite a few events slated for later in the year that are still going ahead. So let's move on to this week's news, which you may have missed, or you may be glad for the reminder, or not. It's a bit odd sometimes when I'm in the UK, but writing using US spelling, which of course I'm used to, but the one word that still makes me stop and think is aluminum, which of course in these parts is called aluminium. Anyway, SIG has made ASI certified aluminum, or aluminium, standard for customers in Europe. India has set up a $2 billion fund that includes the dairy sector. The UK government has announced a consultation period on the regulation of raw milk contracts in the UK. And a new report is recommending transforming food systems under climate change, which includes the dairy industry as well. Edlong has expanded its dairy-based natural flavours line. Borden Dairy has been sold to Capital Peak Partners and KKR for $340 million dollars. And we had our quarterly look at the dairy markets in Latin America. The IDF launched its third edition of the Dairy Sustainability Outlook. Heart Dairy has received strategic investment from Next Gen Nutrition. And there's been some government support for Quebec dairy businesses at both the federal and provincial levels. Two Organic Valley dairy farms in California have implemented restoration projects, and the IDFA has welcomed the FDA announcement on high-protein milk. You can read these and plenty more on DairyReporter.com. Alright, so let's kick things off this week with Larry McGill, Corporate Vice President of Golden State Foods and CEO of CanPack US, a company that created a new milk product in order to help food banks stretched during the coronavirus pandemic lockdowns. To start, I wonder if you could just give me a little bit of background on the company and what you do there. CanPack is a part of the Golden State Foods family of companies. We were looking for a place to expand into China. We had several of our customers asking us to go to China. And so we found a company, a CanPack, that had a factory over there and had uh, ample space to add. And a lot of the infrastructure was the same that we use in our condiment business, with the exception of the sterilization and and the heat. The essential infrastructure was the same. So we bought 51% of that company. And then a year later, we bought 51% of the entire company in the U.S. and worldwide. 
And then uh, a year after that, we bought the entire company out. Uh, it was a privately held company. And so we have uh, basically today, we have two large plants in the United States, one in Arkansas, Kansas, which is just south of Wichita, near the Oklahoma border. And then we have one in Pinyan, New York, that's upstate New York. And then we have offices in Canada. We also have a, uh, a equipment company in um, Connecticut. And then we also have our, our China operation. So we bought into this company about seven years ago. And, um, you know, typically when we look at companies to buy, we look at first the people. You know, uh, I'm a big believer in people, people, people is what makes our company great along with our, our creed and our values. And it was aseptic dairy. That's something that we weren't into. So it's a new technology, and we're always interested in that. that so we were excited about that. And then also we had, um, you know, where it was located in the United States at the time, they just had the, the one plant was in the central part of the U.S., from a logistics backhaul transportation type situation, it made good sense. So, it, you know, we as we kind of checked the buckets to buy the company, it, it hit 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 on most all of them. So that that was the reason we do, we've done that, and and it's been uh, just a, a a wonderful acquisition for us. Obviously, the pandemic has been pretty much on everybody's mind and sure. and it's been taking over everybody's lives. How did you come to get involved in the relief efforts for that? Well, I would say that we had invested in a $20 million in a new bottle line for nutraceuticals and for uh, customers that we had. Like you, you would go in like an insure type product with the company called Perigo and you know, I was watching, you know, like all of us were doing when this first came out, uh, I was watching the news and I was watching milk being spilled and I just thought it was crazy when I have this brand new bottling line with excess capacity. So what I did was I called the milk companies, I called my suppliers and asked for them to help finance this part of our creed and values and our foundation that we have is helping families and children in need. Uh, it's a very, very big part of who we are. It's, it's kind of the ethos of, of our company, the face of our company. And so when I saw this, I thought we have excess capacity. We'll, we'll make this stuff and we'll make milk a good whole milk for plenty of protein. So, so the, the person receiving this is getting a good, getting their protein, ample protein from our products. The label company kicked in, uh, the, you know, the bottling company helped a little bit. You know, I, I made the promise to the food banks that, that we, we, would, we would just do it at our cost, but we would give some of it for free starting out to, because of, uh, of the real need that they had uh, and then hope to get some of the governmental support afterwards. But until then, so we shipped... Uh, free product to several of the food banks in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I just, I think it's our responsibility to be good corporate citizens. Those are the people that, that you know, the, the people that received our milk are our customers. They come to visit the restaurants that we support. And I think that um, to see milk being wasted and people going hungry, I just didn't feel like it sit still. And and look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, you know, why aren't I helping? Why aren't we doing more? And that was kind of how this thing started. It's It's been very, very well received. And we're blessed that we're able to help a lot of people. You turned it around pretty fast in terms of sort of deciding that you were going to do something to be able to get it off the ground. How How did you manage to do that? Well, you're right. Typically, you know, in our world, because you have to, you have a process authority, you have to get USDA approved, you got to get all this. And we had, you know, we have products like that, but we had never made milk before. So we'd made protein products and shakes, things and things like that, but never milk. So, you know, we went to work on this as a team, as a, as a leadership team. 
Uh, we called each of our suppliers. As an example, usually you have a four-week lead time on labels. You know, we had to get the nutritionals right. Uh, we had to submit those to the government to make sure that we had everything correct. And we told them what we were using it for, and we asked them to go as fast as they can. So typically to bring a product to market from kind of the drawing board to the whiteboard to an actual sellable product, takes about four to six months, depending on how complicated it is. We got this done in under a month. That really talks to the suppliers that we have and the commitment of, of our people at CanPack and, and the caring. Uh, they rallied. We had a whole steering committee. We had about 30 of our people involved, everything from purchasing and packaging and line time you know, our quality uh, quality checks to nutritional, our, our food scientists. We use some of our connections through the USDA to get, and our food processor was just uh, authority. Uh, Michael DiGeronimo was just great in working with us. So we took this thing from the old boss walking in one morning and saying, we're going to get this done, we're going to get it done now, and had it done in, let, in right at a month. So I, I'm very proud of our our people, our suppliers, and our community, and certainly our corporation, Golden State Foods, they helped us tremendously with some of the financial support. You know, we did this with making absolutely no money. This was this was just truly trying to help people in need. And how much milk are you able to process and, and ship around to non nonprofits and food banks? Absolutely, we shipped. Uh, we shipped clear to California. Uh, we shipped to the food banks here. One of the great things about aseptic products, uh, you know, as a young boy growing up, you know, the milkman used to deliver the milk on your doorstep. In Europe, aseptics is a lot more prevalent. The U.S. has a huge cold chain supply. Every place has coolers. Every place has chillers and things. But in in the food banks in some of the rural areas. They were really pressed for chilled space to put milk in. And so by aseptically filling it, it's a shelf-stable product. You don't have to refrigerate it. The cost to ship it is, is much cheaper than having to ship on a refrigerated truck. And you just take the product and put it right in your refrigerator if you want cold milk at home. But you can store it ambient. And it has that nine to a year shelf life. So it gives the opportunity uh, as they stock up the food banks going forward where you don't have the spoilage and you're not throwing things away. So it's a huge advantage. It's very, very food safe. Probably the safest because we fill it in a sterile environment and the sterile environment allows us to ensure that there, there's no bacteria in it because it's high heat, it would kill anything that was in there. You know, being food safe, being ambient, being able to store it in ambient, takes relief off the chilled space and gives it a longer shelf life, especially in our rural parts of America that it takes longer to get to. It really hit the mark for our friends at the food banks and the people in need. And how much have you been able to ship out in terms of number of bottles? Right now, we've shipped about about 156,000. We're looking to, to ship another probably three times that more. Since the, the press got a hold of it, our phones started ringing. I, it was funny, when I first started this, uh, Jim, I, 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 I would call the food banks, and they really didn't understand the concept of what I was trying to do. And then finally, uh, you know, I talked to some people who understood what aseptics was because it's it's not as big here in the United States. And so once the uh, food banks understood it, we've started and we're continuing to get calls. We're continuing to do this at, at, at our cost. The dairy farmers are getting paid. You know, our suppliers are getting paid. Our labor, it keeps our people working during the pandemic, which I'm very happy about. But, you know, we're, we're, we're not doing this to, to, to make money. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do.
Now, th this is kind of a new product that you just turned around for this specific purpose. Is it something that once all of this is over, you'll keep that on as a product? Well, that's something that we're considering, you know, because we really like our brand. We can do white and or, or chocolate. We will probably look at that. It's going to be more of a challenge for us here, but we may have opportunities uh, with it. With Golden State Foods, we ship to 22 different countries all over the world. So uh, with that long shelf life, there's some opportunities for us internationally. And we also have seen, you know, all our cold chain customers in America, you know, they're all, everybody's fighting for space in that, in the, in that chiller because it's, there's, you know, the need for fresh product and, and our, our products are all natural. And so uh, I think it's something that we're going to continue if, if the demand is there. We certainly uh, are, are going to take a look at that. Uh, we put no marketing behind it outside of what our friends at Golden State's communication department has done, and they've been magnificent working with us. Yeah, we're, we're probably going to keep it as a part of our portfolio and see where this goes. But right now, the idea in the, in the short-term future is to continue to try to help families and children. That's a great thing that you're doing. How long do you think you're going to be able to keep doing this, or is it just going to be a case of as long as you need to? We're, we're like any big business. We've got to, at some point, bring something to the bottom line. I, I, you know, I owe that to my shareholders, but I would tell you they are also very much in favor of us doing this. I'll do it as long as I have capacity. Uh, and right now, I, I've got a, a pretty good runway with this new, new line. Milk runs very fast because you're not mixing and blending a lot of things. Like if you were to do a a, a nutraceutical drink, this is just milk, and, and and you run it through a heat exchanger, and you and you put it through a, a sterile environment. So so we can run very fast and run a lot of it. So I, I plan on doing this as long as we're getting the demand for a while. Yeah, if I could just speak a minute to Golden State Foods, uh, like our meat our meat department. Uh, went down and, you know, with the pandemic, donated thousands of pounds of meat to the, the local food bank so, so they could have a protein. Our liquid products division, our sauce division uh, has, has donated time and money. And our corporate foundation has made sizable donations and matched every donation that we have made locally. Our foundation runs on kind of independently at each facility that goes up to our greater foundation. And so our CEO, Mark Witterall, kindly matched all the donations from a monetary standpoint where we've given money to the food banks so they can purchase products. Certainly, us doing milk was very high profile. But I also want to make sure, Jim, you understand that as a total company, uh, at GSF, we're committed to living up to our creed and values. It's just not something that, that we hang on our wall like a, you know, a mission statement or something like that. It, tr it truly is who we are. It's on the back of our business cards. And our entire company has rallied to the call to try to help everyone and, and as many people as we can, volunteering, so it's really about all of Golden State Foods and CanPack giving their time, talent, and treasure to try to help during this time. We're going to stay in the U.S. for an interview with two co-founders of Take Two, which has launched Barley Dairy Alternatives. And why not? We have soy, oat, pea, almond, coconut, tiger nut, and plenty more. So why not barley? The co-founders are CEO Sarah Poole and COO Matt Olsofsky. With Take Two, I mean, really it comes back to the barley story. You know, I'm a scientist engineer by background, and actually I had a chance to work at AB InBev for a while there in the, the global supply. But, you know, one of the things with uh, the beer brewing industry is, you know, takes barley grain, right, malted barley, uh, takes the sugar to make beer, which is fantastic. But then a byproduct that is spent barley, spent brewer's grains. And that's basically, you know, concentrated fiber and protein for many, many years. This is seen as waste, right, as a byproduct. Um, they had to figure out what to do with it. 
for the most part, you can sort of give it away or sell it to an agricultural industry as like, you know, cattle food, or maybe burn it for energy or things like that. But really, you know, it was a waste of nutrition. And then uh, about five years ago, AB Embed had a scientist in Belgium, uh, where they're headquartered, and he developed a, a process, you know, he identified it as an opportunity and developed a process to stabilize this spent grain, because one of the biggest issues with spent grains, other than it's highly nutritious, is it's highly perishable. So while I was there, I had the opportunity to work on a project on to, you know, how do we stabilize this to, to create a, a food ingredient? Because, you know, as you know, with the food industry, you know, as food technology and food science evolves, uh, so does the opportunity to have new ingredients to create new and improved foods. So collaborating with uh, AB InBev, you know, they created this ingredient and that's where I, you know, had the opportunity to meet with Sarah and start working on a project. Now that we have this new ingredient, how do we commercialize this, right? How do we take this and make something unique and special? So this was about three or four years ago and, and through a series of iterations and, you know, working with consumers and understanding, you know, the needs and the challenges with, you know, the vegan foods and diets, you know, with plant-based nutrition, you know, taking a really close look at like sustainability and, you know, the, the impact of agricultural and, and uh, animal farming, you know, we really wanted to create a product that could take this plant-based nutrition and get it to the, the mainstream, the masses uh, to make something that was like truly delicious and, you know, actually had nutrition in it as well. And so from there, you know, the idea to create this new barley-based beverage product uh, was spun out of AB InBev and established as its own company. And that's where Sarah and I basically have been and leading the effort and really trying to, to be a champion of barley, right? And, and barley spent grain and using this upcycle ingredient into new and, and delicious food products. So that's sort of the barley ingredient story. But from there, we had many challenges, like where do we start? What products do we make? How do we take this like differentiated, you know, unique ingredient and, and really let it shine and be special? And that's where we landed on dairy-based alternatives, right? As we already talked about, you know, there's been real challenges over the years. Plant-based dairy had a lot of issues, right? Either everything tastes like nuts or you know, has weird, strange flavors and that you can't really use in like everyday applications, or there's really no nutrition, right? If you take a look at almond milk, it's basically a few almonds and sugar, and water, right? It's really no nutrient, you know, nutrition in there. And if you try to put a lot of nutrition in there, right? If you take a pea milk or something, or even a soy milk, right? So you, you can load it up with some protein. And the problem is, is now you have something that like, it's hard to actually eat. You have to figure out like, you know, what am I going to use this eight grams of pea protein for, and, and you know, not ruin my, my smoothie or shake, or you know, you're not going to put it in your pancake. And so there's always been this, from our perspective, you know, this white space of like, you know, highly delicious, you know, highly nutritious space for plant-based dairy alternatives. And that's really what Take Tubes and Focused on is, you know, how can we focus on sustainability, sustainable food, ecosystem, circular economies, taking byproducts, in this case, barley, and then turn them into something that people actually want to consume. So I think really, you know, for me, that's really where the story focuses is, you know, we can have a win-win-win here, right? We can, we can do something that's sustainable um, and great for the environment. Um, with plant-based nutrition, we can provide people and consumers with something that's not only tastes great, but also after, offers real nutrition. You mentioned the, the rejuvenated barley and the ingredient that it comes from. When people see a product sitting on a shelf, I guess they don't really pay too much attention to what led up to it becoming a product. But how did you make that connection or that jump from this rejuvenated barley to an actual product with four different flavors because it seems like you don't just take this stuff and put it in a bottle. You've got to come up with the actual composition of the product. A couple things, right, is, you know, with, with the barley product, with this, you know, rejuvenated barley uh, ingredient that we now have is, you know, one is like, how is it different? How is it unique? And how can you really make it shine, right? And so one of the things is, you know, it's a really mild, neutral protein, plant-based nutrition that that's really hard to find. Most things are bitter and have really weird taste to them. And the other thing, you know, it has a great mouthfeel, right? So you don't have grit. And so from there, just as a barley milk as ingredient or barley as an ingredient, it, it really gives you a great platform to build off of. But then, you know, taking a step back, you know, my opinion, and, you know, as a food scientist is form equals function. If you want a plant-based milk 
to perform in a kitchen or, you know, to make your tea creamy or to work in your, your biscuits or your pancakes or, or whatever application, like it, it needs to have those components in there, right? It needs to have fats, preferably healthy plant-based fats. Uh, it needs to have carbohydrates. We have fiber in ours as well. And so like the ingredients give it not only it's unique and, you know, really desirable properties, right? A great mouthfeel, creamy texture, high nutrition, but it also enables it to have function. So, you know, you can use it in your, in your cooking and like your cream sauces, you know, you, you can use it as a, it's a glass of milk, right? I mean, how, how often, you know, when's the last time you had a, a whole glass of milk because you enjoyed it. And so I think from there, you know, we, we had to look at the entire plant-based ingredient space and say, okay, you know, where do we stand in guardrails for what we are allowed to use in terms of what we believe in and sustainability, but also like, you know, for me, you know, it came down to like hundreds and hundreds of, of iterations of, you know, screening ingredients for flavor, taste and function and, and texture. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, what we landed on was four flavors that could really compete with traditional dairy, right? Not only just plant milks, I think plant milks is one part that we're obviously attracted, you know, a, attractive section of the market. But at the end of the day, there's hundreds of millions and billions of people who drink dairy milk who want to be more conscious with their decisions, want to be more flexible, flexitarian in their diet and, and giving them something that can compete with, you know, the, the dairy, the dairy counterparts that they're currently drinking. You know, that's something that we're actually going after and it just takes time. Right. And, and you need to have a good palate and you need to have like a, a good understanding of the ingredient space and, and just some tenacity and grit just to, to keep going because it's, it's not easy. It's not like a, you know, you go into the lab once and, it, and you find it. Obviously, you've talked about what makes it different, but when it comes to being on the shelves a few years ago, it was just soy and coconut, but now there are all kinds of plant-based alternatives. How do you, with all of the other plant-based alternatives, stand out and get the message across to consumers about the differences in your particular product? Yeah, I think um, it's so interesting because it's an ancient grain. And it's been around for centuries and it's been consumed all across the planet in myriad different ways. And, you know, for rituals as, as part of religions, like ancient religions um, in Egypt and Tibetan monks. And so it's really got this amazing history to it, but it's just kind of gotten overshadowed for its main purpose, which is, is beer. There's so many beautiful things about it, exciting things about it. And that's what Take Two, you know, is really focused on and bringing to life. We could have just made, you know, another plant-based milk, generally speaking, like a formulation of, of different plant ingredients or, um, you know, played down the barley a little bit. But actually, the story of the barley is just really, really exciting. And the nutrition in the barley itself is just really powerful. So we're just really focused on celebrating that and bringing that to life. Um, and we think it's similar, you know, what we've noticed in the market is that, you know, barley is a, a grain that has been used in things like, you know, soups and teas and beer and now milk. And people kind of have that same connection that they have with like an oat. You know, it's, it's something that's used in these like warm, you know, meals that bring them great nutrition. As far as sustainability, what's the carbon footprint like for barley products? Barley is, you know, has a similar footprint to an oat. It's very, very, very low. When you add on to that, that, you know, we're rejuvenating barley and reusing it, uh, you know, giving it a, a second chance after it's already been processed for another application. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just remarkably sustainable. Where is the product available currently? I guess you've expanded the footprint of the product at the moment. Yeah, so currently uh, we're in the United States in the West Coast. It's basically started in Portland and, and we're expanding. We're now in uh, some stores in LA. And then later this year, um, we'll continue that expansion um, on the West Coast uh, and beyond. And it's also available online. We ship ship nationwide in the in the U.S. You mentioned earlier about the, the fact that it's a, a new product and that it, you've been getting that message across. What's reaction been like to the product from consumers? Yeah, I mean, it's been so exciting just getting it out there. You know, the response has been phenomenal. People have said, you know, this is the best plant-based milk I've ever tried. Uh, my kids are drinking it. I think, you know, going back to Matt's original point was that, you know, people don't really sit down to enjoy a glass of plant-based milk like they did with dairy. Drinking a glass of dairy milk has so many 
uh, nostalgic aspects for so many of us. You know, it's, um, you know, sitting at the, the dining room table, you know, eating cookies and, uh, you know, with a glass of milk with our families and people don't do that. They stop drinking milk, you know, because plant-based milk isn't something to just sit down and enjoy. You know, when Matt was creating the, the formulas, it was really, that was the number one was like, let's create a plant-based milk that is drinkable, that's versatile, that does the things that people wish that plant-based milk would do. And so it is delivering on that. And I think because of that, people are just really excited about it. Where do you go from here in terms of expansion, new flavors, new territories? You know, our focus is not necessarily on expanding our flavor offerings in the milk set, but we've also developed a a platform of barley-based products that are plant-based dairy products, such as the cheeses, the yogurt, creamers, shakes that we're really excited about and will continue to, to test on a small scale with, with consumers, you know, locally and, and see what the response is. Our ultimate goal is to create, you know, a platform of plant-based dairy products that deliver on our promise and on our guardrails, which is, you know, great nutrition, phenomenal taste, um, affordability, and then sustainability. It was announced last week that Novozymes, which is based in the suburbs of Copenhagen in Denmark, had acquired Precision Biotics Group Limited, which is located in Cork, Ireland, for 80 million euros. And to tell us more about the deal and what it means for both companies is Ulrich Ergens from Novozymes One Health. Um, yeah, so I wonder if you could just give me uh, some of the background on the reasoning behind the acquisition of Precision Biotics. Of course. So I, I guess it starts with really uh, like-mindedness, I, th- I think, between the two businesses and the two organizations and, and a commitment to science and a commitment to what we call the, the one in a trillion journey in Novoscience One Health, which is all about finding this unique solution to a very specific health channel. So we want to avoid heading down the the track that's been a little bit the approach from most of the industry, uh, which is this, I would call the flagship ingredient approach, where we identify ingredients, whether they be enzymes or microbes or, or other biological ingredients that we master to manufacture, high yield, stable, good you know, cost, and so forth. And then we try them out in as many health benefits as we can think of. And sometimes we're lucky it works, and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes maybe it works okay, and we'll live with that. So we're trying to do that differently and, and say we really want the best solution, that the one in a trillion answer for specific health channels. And, and if that just turns out to be a little bit more difficult, so be it, or if it causes complexity in, in sort of in the back end uh, of, of house, that's okay too. And, and we felt that Precision Biotics very much lift that same way of, of working with what they've done with Alpharex and what they're now doing with, with Senflor, Alpharex and IBS, which I think is you know one of the best clinically documented products. It's not the one with the most studies behind it. You have many of other strains because they have, as I said, been documented in so many different health benefit areas. But if you look at the depth and the quality of the clinical science, we think it's it's one of the the best documented strains out there for a specific health benefit in this case, IBS. So a lot of like-mindedness. And then I think from Neuroscience's part, we announced the the new strategy and, and human health being part of that last year. We had been working on it prior to that announcement and felt the need to accelerate things a little bit and, and both accelerate in terms of business, but also in terms of competencies and skill sets and, and precision about it gets us both of those two things. It gets us a bit more business with the existing products. It widens the portfolio a little bit while we still have lots of organic tracks in-house and it just gives us some new competencies and skill sets that we don't possess today. So I think those are probably the sort of two overarching reasons for, for doing this. What are the overlaps and what areas does this allow you to move into? So thankfully, this is one of these acquisitions which is really for growth. So it's not about consolidation or driving synergies. And and so we have very few overlaps. So when you look at at commercially, we have similar capabilities. But then our focus at Novozymes has very much been China and North America to some extent, where persistent biotics have had a greater focus on Europe and Latin America. So we have similar capabilities, but almost no overlap. The same in terms of science and innovation. We, we both have great capabilities, but we're focused on different things in, in terms of pipeline activities and, and research. 
Novozyme's core capabilities is very much about the early stage discovery and, and exploration of new technologies and new opportunities. And, and I think that's always been the mantra in Novozyme's in, in terms of how we've developed new industries has not been by doing what everyone else does, but has been to come in and, and with that big biotech engine and discovery engine room to look at how can we do things better and differently. And precision products have strategically from the beginning decided not to focus so much on that, but invest in later stage uh, innovation. So they've been more focused on preclinical stages and clinical stages and, and worked in academic partnerships and other forms of partnerships for the early stages. So here we bring, I guess with the Novozyme group, we bring a whole different level of discovery and then to core innovation. Uh, we, we both are excellent at doing clinical uh, science and preclinical science and understanding health benefit areas and, and the physiological links, but we focus on different parts. And, and so again, great, great capabilities and skills on both sides, but thankfully very little overlap. And all the staff that are there, they all still keep their jobs? Yeah, there are no immediate plans to uh, to reduce the size of the site in Cork. Um, on the contrary, we probably want to look at adding, I would say, further competencies. So for instance, the discovery that I just mentioned, we'd like to see how we could build some discovery infrastructure in Cork to allow there's a great academic network around Cork and obviously in Ireland and in general in this space. And we'd like to see how we can get more out of that great network. And we think one of the ways would be to build some discovery competencies in the Cork team. So I think if anything, the Irish site would grow, but there's certainly no intent of, of reducing the site. Well, that's very good news. As far as the coronavirus pandemic is concerned, I think people are starting to take more notice about health and health claims on products and products that offer immunity. Do you think that any aspects of the acquisition will help address some of those trends? I think we all want to be cautious not to end up in a mad rush for the next COVID-19 pluck, because I don't think that's credible. But I, and, and I think we have to be careful when we define immune health, that that's not what it begins to sound like. But in fact, a lot of the core technologies of the core science that Precision have worked on in many years is actually linked to parts of the immune system and part of immune health, and particularly around uh, reducing inflammation. The, the main link to the IBS health benefit is actually from very specific reduction in inflammatory responses that uh, driven by the strain producing this uh, exopolygosaccharide compound. So we, we see great opportunities in diving further into that space. And you're right, there's obviously much greater awareness now, not just on health overall, but of course, specifically on immune health. And, and we have some technologies in, in the Novozyme toolbox that also talks to, to immune health, depending a little bit on how you define it. And I have team members that say, oh, would you please stop saying immune health? Because it's too broad. We, we've got to be much more specific than that. So I'll try and, and get better. At, at not doing that, uh, but we definitely have to this point technologies on both sides, and, and we see that as a future opportunity, but we got to get really sharp on what do we mean by immune health, because I think the days where we just have almost random stimulation of certain interleukin productions or movement of uh, anti-inflammatory markers and so forth, I think those days have to be gone now, and that's again back to the one in a trillion vision. we got to be much sharper. What is it that we're trying to achieve? not just uh, a classic, uh, you know, vitamin C stimulation of the immune system. We've we got to get sharper than that. So that becomes the challenge to really nail down what we mean by immune health and, and what benefits are we going to go after. But I think there's a huge opportunity in that space. And not just with probiotics. I think that's across biology in general. You kind of already answered this, but what does Novozyme's existing capability mean for the growth of precision biotics? So I think there's, um, so short term, there's some commercial capabilities. That's geographical access. We've got a fair amount of team members in uh, in China's Novozyme. So there's just access to some of these, same with the U.S. big markets that have been difficult for persistent biotics in their own right to, to really get to. Then there's access to certain key accounts in the Novozyme portfolio, where again, we have already existing close partnerships that would be potentially quite interested in some of the opportunities precision brings. There's the discovery piece and enabling the, the further advancement of the innovation in Cork by, by tapping into the Novo Science Discovery Engine. And then I think longer term, obviously, when we talk about you know manufacturing and pilot manufacturing and upscaling and, and anything related to fermentation, that obviously speaks to the core of 
of what Novozymes masters so well. I think the business today is still not at a maturity where we really need to in-house manufacturing, but there'll be a point in time where that then becomes the next natural step to think about. Um, and, and there I think we, we represent a whole different skill set. So, so I think there's short-term benefits and then there's, there's longer-term benefits when you talk scale of being part of the Novozymes family. And as you move forward, what kind of things will you be developing as a result of the acquisition? Is it just going to be really sort of business as usual or will you be able to help them work on new products? I think we can definitely assist. Um, and I think the way we apply in the Novozymes One Health business, both consumer insights and data science in ways to identify new opportunities. I think we've got to take IBS as an example. I don't think it's it's one IBS solution for all IBS sufferers globally. We, we already know that there exist clear cohorts of IBS consumers or sufferers or whatever you want to call them that probably need slightly different solutions. Um, and it's not just the, the old, you know, IBS, D, C, and, and so forth. I think it, it goes deeper than that. And I think we can help identify these and then work with persistent biotics and then finding the right solutions for maybe a slightly smaller cohort IBS consumers that needs that different way of, of addressing it. And then they already sort of done the first steps at um, cognitive health um, and, and the link between the gut and the brain and, and that gut brain axis. And that I think we want to see if we can take much further into cognitive health more broadly when you look at, at stress and improved sleep and mood. And I think there's a real opportunity across the combined biology toolbox to find some really novel ways of, of addressing that. So, so I think those are the, the most immediate opportunities in looking at that expansion of the IBS universe and making that much stronger and much more, uh, not personalized, but that you know one level above personalized cognitive health. And then I think, as you, you just talked about before, I think a little further out, the immune space. Precision Biotics does have some interesting signs already in, in this, and, and we just got to go and determine what we mean by, by immune health. So that would probably be what I would envision coming uh, a little further out. And now it's to Berlin, which is the base of Shifali Sharma, director of the European office at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. The organization recently put out a report that was critical of the dairy industry, which drew a pretty swift response from the dairy sector, led by a statement by the GDP and IDF. I should point out that I had planned to do interviews with both the IATP and the IDF for the podcast and did ask the IDF for an interview, and they did say yes, as we featured representatives from the IDF on the podcast many times. Unfortunately, as time went by and we got toward the deadline, the spokesperson the IDF wanted to speak on the subject couldn't make it. So here is the interview with Shefali Sharma from the IATP. I know we've featured the IATP on the podcast before, but I wonder for those that didn't hear you first time around, if you could just give us a little bit of um, background on the organization itself. So we're a, a non-profit organization that's headquartered in the United States. Um, we started in the early 80s. The Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, um, our seat is in Minneapolis. And we started during the, the farm crisis in the United States, actually, in the 80s. And uh, with the first farm bill reform and uh, the formation of the World Trade Organization. So We've been around and we've been grounded very much on farm policy, actually, and uh, looking at the various linkages, including trade and climate and how it impacts rural communities and family farms. Our financials are public, and I mean, we're very explicit about what our mission is, right. which is for healthy communities and healthy planet. Could you just give me a little bit of like what that mission is and and how that fits in with the reports that you come up with? We say we work to ensure fair, sustainable food, farm, and trade systems, and uh, that's pretty much true. We, we're kind of at the intersection of local and, and and global, and yeah, our our mission, our vision is really to have a have a fair and a, a thriving food system that is good for the planet and for people that are producing in it and um, benefiting from it. And so is this report an update on the previous report or is it something completely different? Yeah, this is a uh, this is an update from the previous report. We focus this time just on the dairy corporations. The last one looked at uh, dairy emissions as well as meat 
meat emissions. We will be coming out with another report in the fall that will address the, the meat company. It's very much an update. The previous one we did with another nonprofit organization called Green. This one we did on our own, but we used the same methodology. What have you found in the update? Have you found any improvement or what, what's, what, what's going on? Yeah, so the big headlines are that, you know, these are 13 companies. Their total emissions are that of the annual emissions of the UK. Um, we calculate, you know, their emissions is even bigger than uh, uh, BHP, which is an Australian mining company, and um, Conical Phillips, which is a gas company. But we're looking at, you know, what has happened in these last two years and they're in between 2015 and 2017. And there's been lots of mergers and acquisitions, and but there's also been expansion of production. And so we saw that emissions overall went up by 11% and production went up by 8%. And we do include mergers and acquisitions because we do believe that at this day and age, companies need to be responsible for the economic and growth choices they make. And so they have to own the emissions that come with that when they acquire and merge with other corporations. This is supposed to be a wake-up call, right? We looked at the milk intake and the fact that the dairy industry, that the, these dairy companies don't publish their own milk intake data, we have to rely on ISBN's data. And so we use ISBN's top 20 milk processors list in 2018, which looks at milk intake data from 2017. And we use the same thing in, in uh, uh, when we published our previous report, we looked at their um, their 2015 data, and uh, and then we multiply that with the emissions factors that the FAO Gleam methodology um, subscribes to each region, and uh, looked at you know where do these companies source their milk from, and uh, applied those emissions factors, and came up with these numbers. We're not saying like this is the exact science, but we're saying look, this is what we think. And actually, when we looked at the dairy companies and their emissions, for those very few companies who are actually reporting their emissions, uh, our estimates are actually 5% less than what some of these companies reported as their emissions. So this is actually on the conservative side of things. Although the response to that from the industry has been that the 11% figure is misleading? I don't think it's misleading. I think if you say, look, you're a company that has acquired these companies, um, you have to take on their emissions. Does that mean that there was no growth in dairy production? That's not true at all. Like we can we can argue that, but we know that milk production has also gone up worldwide. How we ascribe that growth to each individual company, uh, that's beyond the scope of this report. But uh, what we're showing is, look, these companies, whether through direct expansion of their milk intake or through mergers and acquisitions, increase their emissions by this much. Another factor in the response to the to the report has been that agriculture is 24% of greenhouse gas emissions, but dairy is only responsible for 2.7% of that. Yeah, I looked at that figure and I went back to where that might have been sourced from. And I believe it's from a 2010 uh, FAO study that says, among other things, it also says that uh, that's plus or minus 26%. So you can see the exact science there, right? I mean, there's a lot of calculations and assumptions that go into these calculations. And it's, that same study talks about, you know, the global dairy sector contributes to 4% of total global anthropogenic uh, and greenhouse gas emissions, plus or minus 26%, because it includes other factors like, um, you know, related to culling and fattening animals. So it's how you how you put your system boundary and what you put in there. But also, if you look at that figure, and uh, there's been other studies since that say, but uh, depending on the method you choose to allocate those emissions between milk and meat, the relative difference between the carbon footprints of grass-based and confinement dairy systems vary anywhere between 3 to 22%. So, you know, uh, I think we need to look at the broader implications and figures, which is that um, livestock is a significant part of carbon uh, agricultural emissions. Um, the IPCC report uh, doesn't just say 24%. It says if we look at pre- and post-production activities of the global food system, then total emissions of the food system are anywhere between 21 to 37%. 
of our um, you know total greenhouse gas emissions. So livestock plays a part in that, and you know 45% of all livestock uh, related emissions come from feed. So not all dairy systems are equal. Um, those with a heavy reliance on feed grains versus those with low stocking densities and well managed pasture are entirely different in terms of their impact on the climate, in terms of biodiversity and nitrate pollution. Our report is addressing the economies of scale industrial model of production that too often relies on heavy use of feed, feedlots, of high stocking densities, and poorly managed pasture. So when a report like this comes out, and obviously the, the sector involved takes great offense to it, um, yeah. clearly that isn't the intent of what you put the report out for in the first place. Absolutely not. And we welcome these conversations. Uh, we're a serious research and advocacy-based organization. We, um, you know, cite and source uh, diligently. We participate in uh, different conversations. Um, but fundamentally, we believe that another system of production is is what the world needs right now, both for rural communities and the planet. Um, and this is borne out in and this is uh, explained in detail in our in our report, which is saying saying, look, this system of overproduction, low milk prices, where companies don't pay the cost of production plus a reasonable profit, is killing rural communities, making farmers lose their livelihoods. Um, and uh, you can see that with the data and statistics in the U.S. in the EU. You can see the farm debt, you know, 30.1 billion New Zealand dollars increase in 16 years between 2003 and 2019. That's pretty serious. The more um, uh, vulnerable even countries like India become and, and, and cooperatives like Amul who like engage in exports in the export and the world market and then when the price comes crashing down, dump it all into their local market, wreaks havoc on small dairy producers in India. So we have to get our farm and trade and climate policies in sync to meet these challenges. And that's the intention behind this report to say, you know, we need to change the way things work. We can't just keep expecting um, companies to get big and then just to pay a price that actually properly doesn't reflect what the actual cost of production is and expect producers to deal with it. And especially when we have environmental and climate challenges that we that governments need to deal with and if companies are not you know and that governments need to step in and regulate this and as far as obviously as i just said and you've given a good explanation there but as far as what i said in terms of the the industry gets defensive when a report like mm -hmm. this comes out what's the the way forward to make meaningful change that will address this as opposed to just putting up a wall and saying this this is wrong this is completely untrue yeah absolutely thanks for asking that question i mean i think i think companies have to really take this seriously right and own it and they should integrate these costs in their growth model and their risk management plans, they should be paying farmers the cost of production plus a reasonable profit, including costs for protecting the planet. And it would be a win-win. It would uh, mitigate risks to some extent because uh, you would make uh, these farm systems much more resilient. You would have much better soil. You would have much healthier animals which would mean that, you know, with the unpredictability of the climate, that's what you need. You need resilient farming systems, um, and you need producers to be able to have that supply. Um, the industrial overproduction, overgrazing, uh, mega dairy system is vulnerable to climate crisis and to shocks, as we've seen borne out with the COVID-19 crisis. So why wouldn't it be in the best interest of the industry to, to internalize that and to recognize that we need to do that? There are certainly steps being taken by some of these companies and in investing in their supply chains, but I think a much more fundamental um, rethink needs to happen about what they can do to, to really get this right. There are companies and dairy cooperatives that have operations in other countries, in Africa, in Asia, different parts of the world. What 
should their relationship be with those countries? Should they be, how, should they be doing things differently? How do we move forward in in that respect? Singling out any company, we don't single out any particular company, but you know what what they're doing in other countries. Uh, of course, uh, you know investing in in small dairy producers in developing countries is, is important. It's critical, but we have to look at the total sum of it, right? If on the one hand you're doing that, and then on the other hand you're flooding some of these same markets with cheap European milk imports that are destabilizing those markets. How does it, how, what's the sum of those two different things that are happening at the same time? So it's very important that we get the, the price right, right? We, we make sure that um, we're not dumping uh, below the cost of production into developing countries so that their domestic markets have a chance to um, thrive. And then if these companies are going to invest in, genuinely invest in, in supporting these, um, you know, small producers to produce in a way that is good for air, water, land, that's fantastic. And getting them access to the market, yeah. That's important, but it's important to remember that they're the more powerful entity. And so that balance of power has to be a central part of that uh, understanding with producers. Where do we go from here in terms of what the report hopes to achieve? Because obviously you don't just put this out and then just say, well, okay, the report's done and off we go. Um, Well, our key message about where do we go from here is, we need to redirect public funds uh, into dairy systems that regenerate soil, that are good for animals, and uh, obviously good for producers. We need to regulate the worst aspects of this production, be it nitrate pollution, be it you know air pollution, be it the climate impacts. Um, and we need to, uh, both companies that and the government needs to step in and help regenerate um, rural communities and the soils through, the, through better practices. So we're really hoping that this sparks kind of a wake-up call for the companies themselves, but also for the government that are, that are elected to take this seriously and, 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 and realize that a set of um, you know, good forward-thinking farm trade and climate policies can go a long way in um, creating a food supply chain that is much more sustainable and fair. And, and do corporations want to be on the right side of history and do and and help do that? That would be fantastic. We're saying let's transition from the industrial way of producing dairy towards a much more uh, regenerative and a resilient system that's fair. That's fair for producers and that's good for the planet. That's what we're really saying. Is that realistic for the bigger companies and bigger producers to be able to affect that kind of change both meaningfully and relatively quickly? I don't know about relatively quickly, but I definitely think meaningfully and uh, it, it's definitely possible. It's not going to happen overnight. If if um, governments are serious, if these companies are serious, then definitely there's a way to have a just transition. Um, and and but it but yeah, it requires a fundamental rethinking of the growth growth model that these companies have and that the shareholders expectations. Uh, but I, I think we have to do that. I think we have to do that in every sector, right? I mean, we are actually on the in the sixth largest species extinction that this planet is facing. We have a very serious climate crisis. We are seeing pandemics uh, that are totally shaking up our economic system. So it's a good time to rethink our economics, our basic fundamentals. And I think if, if we do that, if we measure growth and risk management and et cetera in a very different, with a different set of indicators, it's definitely possible to make that change. And there are certainly policies that have been advocated in each region that have proven like supply management and others um, to help do that. But there has to be a political will to do it. And there goes another podcast. 
Next week, we will have interviews with Selig, Elopak, General Mills, and Chibani, and we already have interviews done for the week after with Norseland, Rethink, Ecotensils, and Food Union. So plenty to look forward to. Not wanting to wish our life away, of course. So I hope wherever you are, if you are still doing homeschooling, that it's going okay, and that you're staying safe and well, and until next week, thanks for listening.